All right, so here we are, part two of the Kai Patterson interview. Um, I've just finished a full day of playing with my uh, two-year-old son. It's a Saturday. I'm exhausted. I was just about to upload the first episode uh, when I realized that I needed a thumbnail, so I had to go off on this tangent and design a couple of, um, I believe, truly, truly clickbaity thumbnails, um, and they are completely ridiculous. I hope you both um, loathe them as for the clickbait that they are, um, but kind of also enjoy them for, for the sheer ridiculousness of how badly I have bought into the trope of uh, making a clickbait thumbnail. In this, the second part of the interview, we're going to talk about Kai's career from uh, his very first memories of technology up until where he's finding himself today. But the question I had just asked Kai, or what do you do to slow the onset of entropy? Anyways. We'll go straight to the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Please remember to uh, provide your feedback on how you felt about how this first interview went. Thank you very much. I realized just as you were like finishing that last question, to which my answer was objects, that I actually realized that there's an even more fundamental answer in terms of technique that will make you laugh, but it's true. Functions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fucking yeah. function, man. Yeah. Like, and if you look at the history of programming, basically, when functions were invented and added to the C language, that's when shit took off. Right. Right. Because the function is the is the unit of reusability and right. extensibility. Yeah. Of code. Yeah. So you and turn I, you turn this complex thing of like you turn this complex thing of ten lines of code into, into a one line and it's just a box and it moves out yeah. over the space and you no longer have to consider that you just assume that that works and yeah. then what do you do you you yeah so you, yeah. I, I mean that was really that's like to me looking at the history of 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 language development i'm like that's when shit really started to kickstart i mean yeah. you mentioned of assembler was obviously pretty good too i i, I would i would hate to be like programming in pure machine language, but really that level of abstraction that came with the function right. was so key. I remember reading as well, and I I don't remember what the source was, but I remember it, it being one that I don't think would be apocryphal, that the original guy that put functions into C, um, he basically convinced people to use them by telling them that uh, it would make their code faster. <laughs> Which, of course, was completely a lie. It was a lie. I, I mean, like, not even a little <laughs> bit of a lie. It was a yeah. bald face. Apparently, they, they, like, somebody a year or two later sort of backwards engineered some of the code that the early compilers were turning out. And it's like, no, it spends about 40% of its time pulling and pushing things off the stack. Right, right. I.e. executing the function call was like 40% of the execution time. So it was a bald-faced lie. But of course, by that time, everybody was hooked on functions, right? right? No one in their right mind would go back to like not, not having functions. Right. <laughs> and it actually reminded me of when you said like, what do I do for that? There was this one time, and I'll admit, I am like ridiculously sort of stupidly proud of this as like one of my early achievements in my career that no one would ever fucking know about or care about except me, but I care. I was working in this language in my first full-time programming job. I was working in a language and environment that was a, basically a 1970s era basic. Okay. Syntax language compiled, but syntactically basic and not like modern basic we're talking 20 like, go to 10 pretty much yeah it yeah. didn't require line numbers but it did not have subroutines right to speak right um and it didn't really have the concept of loadable libraries either okay but what it did have was the ability to execute one file from another one so you could have one compiled script that again was sort of 
was compiled down into bytecode of some kind yep. that ran this thing's weird ass VM as we would call it now. Um, and so after doing enough programming on this thing, I kind of figured out, okay, I can have libraries of functions. I can have functions if I want. I just need to put one each in its own file. And basically I need to build my own call stack. Right. Right. And I even figured out a way to have subroutines within one file that work like functions. And I basically coded my own stack. It's like, okay, push things onto it, take things off of it, right? And it was all semantics. It was all, none of it was hard coded in. It was just me agreeing to abide by certain rules with myself. And once I did that, my ability to do shit and my productivity fucking skyrocketed. Right. Right. Okay. So, and go. it allowed me to do things that would have been just about unthinkable without it. For example, when they came to me and said, um, this was in like 2002, by the way. Okay. So when they came and said, we've hired these guys to build a website and we needed to link into the system. Um, and we all agreed we're going to use XML, which I'd barely heard of at was, the time. It was very yeah. new. Yeah. It wasn't too, right? Um, and I'm like, okay, so now I have incoming HTTP requests, which I also had to learn what that was, right? <laughs> which was really good, by the way. It's I, the fact that the only web server I had for this system didn't do fancy shit like parsing headers for you, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It was a TCP. It was a TCP socket. It handled, yeah. it handled that end of things, but you've got the application, you did the application level on your own, uh, which is one of the reasons why I've had a strong understanding of how networking works compared to your average web app over the years, because my first at bat, I had to basically write my own web server, effectively right. speaking. And In, I'm sorry, uh, sorry to up. interrupt, but you had to write your own web server in some form of 1970s basic without yes. line numbers. Correct. Yeah. Now, again, okay. the underlying system did handle the networking. So that's not as crazy right. as it sounds. Like I wasn't, I wasn't accepting TCP packets. I was getting a data stream. Okay. I was getting an HTTP data stream. So all I had to do was interpret the headers, which honestly I could just junk most of them because I didn't, I just didn't give a fuck. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then I get the body in basically a giant string and okay, now I have to do the body. Here's the thing. Accepting the incoming HTTP stream in a non-function having basic, that wasn't the hard part. Parsing XML, mind you. Right. <laughs> and oh yeah. Unstructured XML where I yeah. cannot I cannot make I can't hard code any assumptions about things like what the structure is going to be, how deep it's going to go. I need to actually build an XML parser. Like for realsies, right? Um, so, so I did. I built. I, I. I basically because I had this experience building the functional call stack. I basically learned how to build a reentrant call stack right. <laughs> in basic, and I'm like, but I tell you, like once so, you've had to build your all your your own reentrant call semantics, you know, a lot of things later in life are are a lot clearer. Right. So what was the business? So, what was, let me let me go further back. I I mean, so your first memory because I I kind of I kind of in my head for the interview style of things. I really wanted to try and get the timeline of your journey in technology, mm. and so I kind of where are your first memories of technology? Where you so um. When I was very, very young, I know my parents had an Apple II. Okay. But I have, I have memories. I would have been toddler, basically, at that time. Excuse me. Um, um, I have very vague memories of sitting in front of a desk with an Apple on it. Um, then when I, I had... I had a couple of toys. I remember my my aunt one Christmas giving me a toy that I, I totally forgot about for years um, that I think was actually my next computer, essentially. 
and it was programmable too. It had like a one, one or two character display on it, but it did have some kind of basic built in. And I actually have memories of like messing about with that when I was seven or eight, something like that, not knowing what I was doing, I don't think. Sure. Um, you hit the button and, and the light goes ding, ding, and you... Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, I know I got a hand-me-down Commodore VIC-20. Okay. Um, and I remember that would have probably been the first time that I saw code because there was games that I would load off of a cassette cartridge and I would see the code for them before I ran it. I don't think I knew what it was just a step that you do before you run the game, right? Um, and then Commodore 64, but really things started when I got my first PC. So I got an XT. Um, now this wasn't when XTs were brand new, by the way. I mean, right. I wasn't, wasn't anywhere near that. It was, I think the 386 had just come out basically when I got my first XT. Um, but it was so the yellow screen 8086 sort of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. monochrome monitor. Yeah, 8086, uh, not 8080. I didn't have a floating point co-processor on it. Um, I don't remember how much RAM I had, but it probably would have been, you know, 600, 6K, something like that. Not the full meg yet, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but it had DOS, DOS 5 on it. Or, I, you know, I got, I got DOS with it. And somewhere in all of that, I stumbled across QBasic. Right. And it had two games that came with it. And by this time, I'm... I'm 10, 10-ish, 10, 11, something okay. like that. And so now I'm I'm like staring at this code before I run the game. And sooner or later, I got curious about what it was all doing. I mean, I understood this was the stuff that made the game happen. And at some point I got curious about like, well, how does this happen? And so I taught myself QBasic, the like slow, laborious way, right? I mean, no tutorials, no... Not, nothing like what exists these days, man. I remember looking at the help menu, the F1 menu in QBasic, which wasn't, was just a reference, right? And I remember writing down the, it would give you the function, right? And like the argument names and, and whatever. And I'd write that down. And I remember pasting, like typing that in verbatim and it wouldn't work, of course, because it's just the, the function definition, you know what I mean? Function yeah. definition with named arguments, whatever. But somehow I like brute forced my way through it until I would have a working program, the equivalent of Hello World or whatever, probably right. just printing one character. But I remember at some point I figured out how to make a working program. And basically it was all, I mean, that was that, was that for me, right? Like um, my first program full program that I remember writing that did something is I wrote a uh, 3D tic-tac-toe. And so it wasn't three, it wasn't visually three-dimensional. It just showed you three boards, front, right. middle, back, right? But it would calculate like, so you could, you could, you know, you could win by having three in a row or three like this. And I coded the whole thing up, it worked. Um, here's the thing though, um, you can imagine you know, how many different success scenarios there are when you've got a three-dimensional tic-tac-toe. Well, I didn't know about four loops yet. Right. So when I went to check for the victory conditions, that was an if-else statement. You want to talk about maintainable code. Right? But I got them all. I got, I got them all, man. Yeah. I had an if-else statement that laboriously checked manually yeah. every individual winning combination possible that's amazing that's amazing because i did and then a few months later i learned about for loops and i was like oh well that would have that yeah. oh that would have saved me some time um but yeah that was my that was the first real fully functioning program that i remember writing um yeah. and i also had a theory that came out of that which i've never been able to prove or disprove that i think it's not i suspect it's not possible to have a cat's game in three-dimensional tic-tac-toe I've never like mathematically. What is a cat's game? Where you tie? What oh, I see. I see. Yeah. When you have two non toddlers playing tic tac toe, it ends in a tie, right? Because. Right. You, but I think with three dimensional tic tac toe, I don't think you can have a tie. I never had one, anyways. So 
So that was that. Uh, that went on for a while. And then somewhere along the way, I learned, I don't even know where I learned this from, but I learned that real programs, because I was running into the limits of basic by this time. I remember making a, a bitmap editing program. Yeah. Wow. You could in like. QBasic. In QBasic, yes. Okay. It had severe limitations. Like yeah. your, <laughs> your arrays could only have two dimensions. There was a maximum number of elements to them. Uh, and it was an inter it was a, it was a runtime interpreted language, right? You know, so very slow. But yeah, I remember writing uh, this bitmap editor um, where you could like press keys to move your dot around, pick the color off of, um, I think off of a VGA palette by this time, right? Um, and then you'd like, so you pick your color, you press spacebar for the dot, you could move it around and do more dots. Um, but it was, it was the absolute limit of what you could do with QBasic. Like it was, right. the, it was the memory limit of what QBasic would let you do, right? Like, uh, and it was slow as hell. <laughs> um, so that was about the point where somewhere in there, I discovered that real programs are written in this thing called C. Right. So I convinced my parents to, um, they were never, I think their rule with me was they would never buy me games, but they would buy me other computer stuff if I wanted, right? Like within reason, they weren't gonna run it and buy me a brand new PC or whatever, but they would they would support me if it was really for education. And so I decided to buy C and somehow what I settled on was Borland C++ with, um, and it was this giant box full of books. Like it was, it must've been like, two feet a foot and a half or two feet long by a foot deep by a like like full of books and a couple of discs right floppy discs 3.5s um and so i got that and absolutely couldn't figure it out at all made zero headway on it <laughs> none whatsoever um and then i remember my dad and i went to a computer show and there was, we found some guy there that had a book that was um, going from basic to C. Uh -huh. It was specifically designed to take you know basic, but you don't know C and you want to learn, translate the concepts over and give you that like, that like boost, that like yes. starter, starter battery boost that you need to hop over all of the, like all of the abstractions that the basic puts in there. Um, and so that helped. And then I was able to then go back and hit the books, the C books again, and then start figuring out what was what. And then I learned C. And um, so that, that. So you're not even out of high school at this time yet, are you? I wasn't in high school yet at this time. You weren't point. even in high school. I think that probably would have been around 13 or so. Okay. Because I, I don't have any mem all my memories of me being in high school were I wasn't working in basic at that point. That was C. So I'm think I'm thinking it was probably around when I was 13 yeah. that I made the leap to C. Yeah. Uh, now it wasn't like I did a lot with it. I wasn't one of those teenagers that went and like made Tetris or or <laughs> like I, I I didn't have this the the stick with itness ultimately to really like see projects through to completion for the most part. I yeah. did build an application for my dad. He is a big one for to-do lists, like yeah. checklists for life. Like he's got a morning at this point. He had, you know, like a list that he wanted for the, you know, things to do in the morning and throughout the day and in the evening and goals and da 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 And so I built him a program where he could, he could organize all of these, assign point values to them, fill it out. It would give him a point total and track how he was doing over time. So he could right. like generate stats over time. So that was one of the only actual finished things that I ever did throughout my teens. But when I look back on it, um, the writing was very much on the wall for what kind of dev that I, I was gonna be, even though it took me a couple decades to really realize it. So I wanted to be a games programmer, right. of course. 
Didn't what, we all? What teenager, what Didn't teenager in programming is, <laughs> I yeah. mean, no, nobody at 14 is like, I want to be a database developer, or, you know, this spreadsheet <laughs> thing could be so much better. It's yeah. like, it yeah. doesn't, it starts with games, right? Right. Um, so I kept sitting down to make games and I kept producing game libraries, <laughs> like game utility libraries. So I built, and this is right in the list, this is like 94, 95 type era, right? Like right in the PC land where it was still, everything was still DOS essentially. Um, and I also never got introduced to Unix at this point. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was purely in Microsoft DOS land, right? Uh, I didn't know what a real operating system looked like until years later. And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot more sense than what I was working with. But anyway, so I kept sitting down to make games and then going, okay, but I need to have some way of handling keyboard, uh, joystick, uh, yep. mouse, uh, graphics out, um, timing, uh, da, da, da. So I, I kept writing code to handle it, to, you know, to go like, okay, well now I have code that can handle a joystick. Now I have code that can um, do uh, sound output through a sound blaster eventually, right? Um, now I have code that will handle an event loop for me and time things nicely, right? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So basically I never did end up writing a game out of it, but I built this entire library of, of every I mean, function that you would need. Effectively, you built all of the tools that you could throw away as soon as Unity comes around, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, yeah well, sure. all of the garbage, all of the stuff you can throw in the garbage as soon as on the, uh, the Unreal Engine goes open source. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, remember, this is back when, you know, the only engine out there that anybody would ever have known about was Doom. Right. Well, I mean, we because I, I mean, in the timeline, if we're listening to what we're talking about, Unreal Tournament is only a few years away at this point, right? Because if we're at Doom, then it goes Quake, and then Unreal yeah. Tournament comes along, and yeah. So, you know, we're not far um, off of that. But I don't remember Unreal being really a, a platform you could sink your teeth into the, the moment the game came out although i wasn't paying close attention so i could be wrong about that i i found i that was that was the one where i first started map making for stuff so because they they released their map making tools with it so you could go around shoot people for a bit uh, and then you go oh what's this i want to make my own map Anyway, right, yeah, where yeah. the earlier games it was always separate add-on stuff like i had a map editor for doom um, and I had, I dug into how Wolfen, or no, Wolfenstein, Duke, Duke Nukem 3D was made. And apparently it had actually a pretty, a pretty spiffy reusable engine for its time. Yeah. But, yeah. but So, uh, we, I mean, let's, so let's, let's move forward a bit. Oh, and then I took CS in high school, which was yeah. a joke. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then so you, and you go through university. Is there anything major that happens I, in the university time? Never went to university. Really? I never went to university. In fact, wow. Um, in well, you fact, were already writing QBasic at six. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, I didn't have a very successful scholastic career. Okay. Um, and so by the time I was done with high school, or high school decided to be done with me, um, I kind of I didn't have any motivation to go on to university. I was at a pretty messed up state mentally at that point, but. I, I do think it was probably the right call as well to not go and waste many, 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 many thousands of dollars right. on an experience that I don't know that I really would have. Right. So I don't think I would. I don't think I would have utilized that time well. Um, so I got a job. Okay. Um, Did you go straight to a programming job? No. Um, okay. So the 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 progression that my career and I went on and I repeated this several times um, was I would get hired for customer service yeah. because all throughout my teens, I worked doing telephone customer service. I was actually on the phones working before my voice broke. <laughs> um, so I was in the odd position that when I was 18, 
uh, years old, I could, I already had like a goodly number of years experience working on the telephones professionally. Um, so I got hired part-time to work on the phones as an order taker for a delivery company. It was a, a basically a precursor to our current, to like DoorDash or Skip the Dishes. Right, or right. Um, back when it was all just, you know, telephone. Yeah, basically. but right now we're about, we're somewhere between 1995 and 2000, right? This is, this would, I got hired there in 99. Okay, okay. When I was basically my last year of high school. Um, and so I got hired part-time then um, in the summer after I graduated, um, I started working more than by somewhere in that first, it didn't take more than a couple of months, I was um, a supervisor, which doesn't actually sound like much, but what it actually meant at that company is I was one of two people that ran the show. Right. Like, like we were open from 9am until 11pm Monday to Friday and 4pm till 11pm Saturday and Sunday. And at any given moment during those hours, somebody was in, was the call center supervisor and there was only two of us. So we split right. the load and we did ever like the buck stop with us. We were the, the authority, right? Um, which was this weird, I was this like 18 year old kid growing his first beard, um, which apparently looked really horrible. And uh, it, it, it eventually fell to, when I finally shaved it off, I remember my, my, my compatriot, the other call center supervisor, was like, oh, thank God you got rid of that. It looked like a squirrel crawled onto your face and died there, yeah. <laughs> which phrase stuck with me. But I, I was young. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm like, have between two and five call center workers under me. I have a dispatcher or two or three that do their own thing, but ultimately kind of report to me. I have a stream eventually of like 20 drivers a night to cash out. Yeah. And all of this is like me, I, you know, everyone else I know is off doing first year university Yeah, at this point, right? So, so that was my job for a while. And it was at times very, very, very busy. But then of course there'd be times where nothing was going on. It was just a dead evening, right? And there just, there just was nothing to do. And so here's me with this terminal emulator open on this cheap Dell computer in front of me yeah. that's, you know, going to some computer somewhere that's running this POS-like system that was built to run this delivery company's stuff. Yeah. And so eventually I start kind of tinkering with it, right? <laughs> Figuring out what it's doing. Um, came across a set of books on the uh, the system that it was that the software was built in, mm -hmm. um, which was this 1970s era. Right, the 1970s, basic that you were talking yeah. about earlier. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was back in the days when there was real no no real separation between operating system and database engine, right? So they were married together. Um, the whole thing by now had been ported and was actually was running on top of Linux. Um, as I was to eventually discover, and that was how I learned, started learning Unix. But, um, but anyways, I'm sort of digging down through layers of this thing. And the first one is like, okay, I come across the command prompt and I start figuring out certain things I can do. And a couple of them become immediately useful, right? Like I'm able to get some quick, like, hey, there's some things that I cannot make our stupid interface tell me, um, but I can do it through here, right? right. Um, and so that goes as it's going to go when you put a tinkerer and you give him access to your computer system and <laughs> he's going to figure out your computer system. Um, sooner or later, the owner of the company um, kind of got wind of this. And after he done, after he got over his freak out right. and realized that it was like, rather than viewing this as a threat, he could view it as an opportunity. Because right. um, apparently he was every piece of work that he needed done on the system, he was paying some contractor, probably 120 an hour or something like that, right? Um, 
and the contractor didn't do perfect work. There was still the occasional day we'd come in and overnight the system would be would been broken by something and then we're, we can't do anything until it's fixed, right? Like right. this thing runs everything. Like we can answer the phones, but we can't actually do anything except say, sorry, we can't take your order right now. Click like right. um, when, the, when the system goes down. So anyways, he ran some math and probably figured that he could get a lot of cheap work at, out of an 18 year old. <laughs> <laughs> save sure. himself like many thousands so he um he gave me a full-time it job and okay. that was my first programming job and, and then was it. and then i left there went to work with my dad full-time for a while basically helping kind of helping to transition his business from a larger affair down to a smaller affair Okay. Electronic, you know, turn sort of turn it into a paperless operation. Yeah. Um, some things like that. I I did actually somewhere in there build him um, for one of his businesses um, a web based CRM, <laughs> which right. in in retrospect was was probably really not the smartest idea. But in my defense it was an awkward era where there really wasn't a lot of good solutions out there for that kind of thing. And yeah. some were there were, were either very expensive or very limited. Um, so anyway, so then after that, I went to work for another company. And again, I got myself hired as customer service. Okay. In that case, I founded their I was the first full-time support employee the company had hired. Like, where I did nothing but customer oh, service. And, and what was the what was this business? What were they doing? They made websites. Oh, okay. So it was a like an uh, like an agency. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very okay. much. Um, it was an agency. They had developed their own in-house CMS. Yep. Which I still think of very, very, very fondly. Um, it was tr really a truly amazing concept excuse me, concept and piece of technology that the company just never figured out what to do with. Um, so I started there, I worked in support there for, uh, I think about a year um, before, again, being transferred into the sort of newly formed, what we call the R&D department, which was basically me and one other guy who were sort of really the core developers of this CMS platform that um, built the features that the rest of the company used, right? We maintained the sort of core platform, did project work as well, but it was sort of our goal to, our mission to try to drive the actual platform itself forward. Right. Um, which was a quixotic goal at that company because it was a company that thought it was a product company and really wanted to be a product company, but wasn't. So the owner would keep talking about the product mentality but when push came to shove, he'd, he'd always go with the quick paycheck, right? Yeah. And it's like basically the difference between a service company and a product company is the product company sooner or later will say no. I mean, when, when push comes to shove, that's basically what it comes down to is at some point you say, no, that isn't the direction our product is going to go in. We're really sorry. We can't take your check. Right which is a really, 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 really difficult thing for a business person to do. So that's right. a hard transition to make, right? And I've been at multiple companies that have toyed with that transition and I've never seen any of them pull it off. Nobody ever, nobody ever does is, is what you're thinking. Nobody says. I think right. that transition is so difficult to make. Yeah. Once you started as a consulting company that you, you just, it's just not possible to change that. That gets so baked into the into your DNA that um, that it just doesn't happen. Um, what year is what year is this that you figured that out? That was, uh, or is this something that you've come to come to understand in the time since you saw that one do it? Yeah, I would say it's over the last ten years. It's sort of it's it's slowly dawned on me, right? As I've now seen it, because I've seen it play out at companies since then as well. Right. Um, and then the most recent chapter looking at looking at our company um, yeah. and seeing that again, 
especially now with the wisdom that 20 years of this has brought me and this, yeah. is, this is my sort of my first rodeo, I can look around and go, that's, I can see, I can feel how, how difficult to, to the point of impossible, impossible it is to, to make that transition to the product mentality. Right. It's like, it's just the idea that you get a lead, you get a pitch, you get a quote, you get a work order, you get an invoice, you get a check, you do the work, you finish the work, you do the next pitch. That once you are on that cycle, that's your cycle. And if at some point you find that you have developed IP that you might be able to do something else with, how? How, 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 do, you, you even, how do you scale that? Because you built the first piece of IP for one customer's specific need down to the color of the buttons, right? And then on the... And then how do you, I, I mean, because this, that was for me, for you, for me to hear you say that was very much like a revelation. Say, oh yeah. I mean, I've been watching, I've, I've seen that happen too, where, you know, we, I mean, we've both seen the same thing. And so has anybody ever, anyways, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think of all the famous examples as well. And it's. I can't think of one. You know what I mean? Like, can you think of any famous product out there where the company started as a sweatshop type of a thing, like as an agency or or a work for hire? Like, I can't think of one. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it's an impossible thing to make. And I mean, if ever there was a company that could theoretically make the leap, our company right. is one that could, right? And I mean, it's their they're clearly toying with it in to some degree, very far away from us. So we'd have no yeah. idea how well it's going. Right. But, um, so who knows, but I mean, I can say that it's like you haven't seen it close up once you have a business unit, at least that is on that hourly contract, um, workflow, you right. really cannot get them off of it. There's no such thing as going like, well, we're going to put a project through the pipeline that does not have a work order directly attached to it or a single client. Um, the whole process pretty much just doesn't know what to do with it, right? right. <laughs> it just doesn't, it, you can, you can get little tiny ones through maybe, right? Like little small pieces here and there, but to really truly go, okay, now we're going to reformat this into a product and it's going to be a fairly major project and we're going to run it through this pipeline. It doesn't work. Like it falls it, apart. It falls apart. You, you can't get anybody to make the decisions to make, to, to, to make that big leap. And even if you could, I don't think you'd have a delivery team that knows how to do it. Right. It's right. just, it's just well, too much. Selling, selling the product is very different as well. If you right. have it's services. A yeah. Opposite. Yeah. Opposite sales cycle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. This thing, this thing is here and it'll do what you want it to do rather than we will build the thing that you need it to be. Right. So, yeah. And so, okay. So we're in, we're in this phase where we're, uh, this is your first agency and you're on you're you're again on a team of two and where do we where do you go from there or how does that continue to play out you oh um so i was there for quite a while i was there for a total of five or six years okay um and eventually i left um i left later than i should have i think because the really it had been clear to me for quite a while before I left. I left in 2012 and it had been clear at that point for a while that the, the product that I was ostensibly working on was not going to be 
wasn't going anywhere, put it right. that way, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't really going to, not that the technology itself was in any way poor, but the management of it at the company level was just, it wasn't going to happen, right? Like the company wasn't going to get off of that paycheck to paycheck uh, mentality. And the company wasn't all that great at the paycheck to paycheck thing either. <laughs> it, was very, it was very bad at project scheduling, right? And yeah. I mean, it, it's almost laughable. Of course, everybody is. But I mean, these guys were really short-sighted in the way they'd go about things um, and never somehow connected their escalating support costs nine months later to the poor design decisions that they made on day zero, right? I remember once I pulled an all-nighter doing um, a, a write-up at the request of, um, of sort of the like the lieutenant of the company um, who was a very good friend of mine, an ex-roommate. I was his best man. We get along fine. But yeah. in this case, it was sort of like he really had his management hat jammed on his head very hard. It was it was restricting blood flow. <laughs> um, and um, there was a set of features around event management that we had two clients that both had very similar needs with projects happening at around the same time. So he being Mr. Sparty Pants is like, okay, we'll build this feature once and then we'll finally be able to start building these reusable features that the platform makes so easy to do and that we keep not doing, right? Like, um, and so he came to me to basically write up how it should work, like a technical specification, right. and to give him an estimate for how long it would take. So, and he asked, it was, when he gave me this, it was like, and I need this tomorrow or the day after or something. So I ended up pulling just about an all-nighter writing this gigantic Word document. Um, and I gave him a really, what in retrospect of like a week later was probably a very, very poor estimate. Like, I really glad handed a lot of stuff. I came in at a month, right? And yeah. the answer was probably that it would have taken quite a heck of a lot longer than that. Yeah, but that's not what happened anyways, because what he said is that's too long. <laughs> right. It, it needs to be done in like two weeks. And I'm like, or I think I know, I think I might even said more like more like a month and a half or two months. Anyways, he came back yeah. with something that was a tiny, a fraction, a, a fraction of that. Yeah. And, uh, and also that I wasn't going to be the one doing any of the work. It was going to be our offshore team completely. And I was, going to be busy enough that I really probably wouldn't really even be able to help talk them through it, particularly. Right. They're going to be getting the document that I just wrote and nothing else, which is not a recipe for no the rest, the recipe being followed. <laughs> yeah. um, and anyways, so yeah, I mean, basically fast forward the clock nine months and it still basically wasn't done, right? And any pretense of it being any sort of reusable component library was way out the window by this right. time. Um, and so that was that kind of thinking was just endemic at this company. And then the owner of the company decided to disband the R&D team. Right. Now, to me, my translation of this was, you are killing the product. Right. That is apparently not what he thought he was doing or his lieutenant my best friend thought yeah. he was doing there he they they seemed surprised by my reaction of like you are killing the product maybe you don't think that you are but you are going to end up it's going to get forked and yeah. once it's been forked that's it it's, it's just there's no coming back from that ever right at least yeah. the one thing we have going for us right now is there is only one copy of the software it might exist in 50 bazillion different versions and different iterations that have been deployed all over the place with no solid versioning scheme and no easy updates process. But at least there is only one official piece of something. Once you get rid of that and you don't have somebody minding the shop internally. How big was this team overall, by the way? So, um, or the company, the company. In-house varied, when I was hired was, uh, I think, 12-ish. Okay. Got up as high as probably 30 or 40 in-house. 
plus an offshore team that got up to a lot, actually. Yeah. I think there might even have been 50 or 60 over there at one point. Okay, so... It kind of fluctuated up and down, yeah. right? And eventually down, down, down. But um, and anyways, that's when I left. And that right. was the final straw for me because I could see what they what what no one else was willing to, which is that it's like, one, your product is not going to come back from this. And two, I'm still going to be the one having to keep it working. You're still the bag holder. I'm still, exactly, the bag holder, precisely. I'm still going to be the one holding the bag to keep this thing going, except I'm not even going to, so, I mean, it's basically, this is just going to make my life miserable and pointless because at least up until now, I can tell myself I've been working towards building this this thing to go somewhere. Basically, you're telling me at one time both that it's not going anywhere, to my mind, and that it's going to be harder for me to maintain it. And I'm not going to have dedicated time to do that. So yeah. it's like, that was the end of that. I quit. Um, I just gave my notice. And uh, um, bummed around for a while. Um, what was that like? Bad. Yeah. Don't do well if I don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not good at it. Um, but yeah, the, over the next couple of years, I worked for a tiny company. I was the first full-time employee um, that was in the email marketing business. Okay. This is where I learned everything that I or any other person will ever want to know about email and so, so, so much more. This is why now whenever the subject of like email and development comes up and people ask me in anything about it, my answer is don't like, no, don't go and pay someone else who does this right. full time. Right. It's, 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 it's you want to go and pay, you really want to go and pay SendGrid or MailChimp or whatever, pick your, pick your poison, but make it their problem. You do not want anything to do with deliverability um, right. because it is a absolute nightmare. Um, but I've been there. I've done that. I've, I've, uh, I think I can now say I've built multiple SMTP relays basically from scratch. The one I wrote for this company, um, the engine of the thing, it's too bad. It was about 10 years behind its time um, for the, the the niche that we were in, which was a pretty soul-sucking one. Um, I, yeah. Affiliate email marketing is not yeah. is, is it's not a it's not a it's not a business where you, you get to the end of the day and go and go well I've made the world better today like no, <laughs> no, no. so we must be about 2012 or something right is that yeah yeah, yeah. 20, that's, 20, that's 2013 now affiliate mark I don't know because I was in I was in affiliate marketing at the same time and it was uh, well it was it's bad. not life affirming that's for damn sure yeah it was uh, yeah yeah and. And the affiliate email marketing world almost honestly made the web world look like sane and shiny and upright by comparison, right? right? So you were a Nigerian prince? I was one or two steps up from a Nigerian prince. Okay. Yeah. 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 We, 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 we followed can spam, but that's not that hard to do. Right. Right. Um, This is when I learned that, it is absolutely amazing how many people do in fact go into their spam folder, read their spam email, open it, click the link, go to the website and buy something. Like it's, it's a lot of people. You can make a lot of money if you've got the right offer and you know how to deliver it. Like you you really can. Um, The heyday of it was back in the zeros. Yeah. So by 2013, 2014, it's becoming a lot more difficult. Yeah. Um, Basically, because all of the, um, it's becoming much more difficult to get good deliver delivery rates, yeah. right? Um, AOL's clamping down, Yahoo's clamping down, um, broadband has a greater percentage of, of the total, and you can't really tell what's going on there as much. And then you get this new player on the scene growing like wild hotcakes, which is, of course, female, right? Right. Um, and Gmail has this radical new idea about deliverability, which is if they don't like you, they just black hole your shit. Right. 
<laughs> they don't bother sending you an error message. They just they yeah. they just they just forward to Dev Null and that's the end of that, right? Yeah. Um, so you know the only way that you really know what's going on with your deliverability on Google is basically if your numbers fall off of a cliff, then it's like, well, yeah. I guess we're doing something wrong. Um, you can burn out an IP range real quick, but so that was technically that was a very interesting challenge that whole time because yeah. first I was working on a lot of software that had been written by the owner of the company who was not a developer by in yeah. any way, shape, or form, and he had kludged together this this insane suite of applications in PHP that were just like, I don't even know how he, like, I don't know how he did it. I mean, it's just, it, it's like crazy. Um, so a lot of very careful refactoring and trying to like map out a multi-year plan, plan to like kind of try to make this a little more workable and a little more stable. Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the pieces of software that I was maintaining there, not the mailing one, but was a mailing list management one, right? And I'm like, this thing is pumping in and out millions upon millions of API requests per day, per instance. So it's getting some serious volume. Like it's got to handle gigabytes and gigabytes of data. Yeah. And it's just this kludge together, PHP and horrible MySQL insanity where every once in a while the database will like corrupt itself and it's all ISAM tables that you can't recover I mean, it was just like I remember my first year there was <laughs> felt like it was just like going from emergency to emergency to emergency to support request or whatever um but I mean I eventually got the thing to the point that it wouldn't fall over <laughs> anyways. Um, that was an interesting experience. It's hard for me to summarize that couple of years because it was yeah. just us. And yeah. it was a really, really weird time. But um, um, then I ended up working for, after that, for a small agency for a couple of years where it was like a couple of guys and they basically only had one client. And that client was um, an advertising company that specialized in small US healthcare. Okay. You know, okay. They had um, individual doctors, dentists. Um, um, they had a lot of um, like uh, cosmetic surgery clinics. Um, things like that. So our company essentially was almost like an outsourced IT department for this advertising agency where they had just, they had never really grown an in-house IT arm. And this company had ended up being that and through sort of lack of attention and growth strategy ended up with just having this one client. Right. <laughs> it was like 90 plus percent of the revenue. Um, not a, you know, not a great place to be, but yeah. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years. Um, then I left and kind of again bummed around for a while. Um, started my own company with uh, a partner, the same uh, person from my story earlier, actually. Right. Um, and um, we, I ended up doing that as a full-time job for a while, which had, had never been the intention. Um, I'd started the company to, with him to explore a couple of product ideas. Um, and then out of the ruins of that first company I mentioned that I worked with him at way back when he'd stayed at, out of the complete and utter final collapse of that company, he rescued one client that right. continued to need support for this, their web properties, which were running on this, product that the company had built in which they had been sort of hoodwinked into paying a bunch of money for a perpetual license for just recently. So they had to keep using this thing for a while and they needed support yeah. for it. So this partnership that I had started, which was initially really just supposed to be a part-time exploration of, you know, sort of trying to get this product out the door while we're doing other things to, you know, make money, suddenly turned into a full-time gig right 
once again on the now I'm now I'm experiencing firsthand the what happens once you're on the do right. you know do hourly work for check bandwagon and you try yeah. to mix product work in with that which is you, you can't it's the mindset even at a personal level I can't divide my mind against itself to do it right like even yeah. when I theoretically could I don't it's too much of a shift so basically the the product end of things went nowhere over that length, that course of time. Um, but meanwhile, the both of us kind of got hooked on the revenue, but yeah. we had never, we had never founded this partnership with the idea that it was going to become a little, a little agency, right. Or yeah. a little website making development company. Um, we had never intended to set up a sales pipeline for example, right? Like little things like that, that we never had because we had never intended to be the only clients we got were by accident. Um, but nevertheless, there was enough of them and enough work that it, 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 it was a full-time job until it wasn't. Right. Basically. So sooner or later, um, that one, the couple other clients we had picked up, the other projects we'd picked up trailed off and, and weren't replaced with new ones. And our one big client that had got us into it um, became a lot less interested in having us do work on their websites, basically, for reasons that aren't really clear to me still. Um, and uh, then it was like, well, it reached the point where it's like either, either we need to get serious about selling ourselves, and this is what we're doing now which means we need a marketing plan and we need to start figuring out how to sell ourselves and advertise and all this stuff that we're not really in a great position to do uh, or we need to go and get a job. <laughs> right, right. As we're starving. And I mean, I, I, we waited long enough that it was like, no, we were actually starving. <laughs> like actually, actually starving. Um, like like can't pay rent level type type foolishness way way past the point that we both should have one of us should the have sell by date yeah one of us should have woken up and said like uh, uh we got to stop doing this to ourselves um and so that was when i updated my resume yeah and um uh, went on the open job market for kind of sort of the first time in my entire career, oddly enough, because I've actually had some degree of in at every other company I've ever been at. But yeah. certainly even just measuring it is like going through regular hiring process that had been just about 10 years. Yeah. Sorry, no, more than 10 years at this point. Um, so, and then I reached out to a contact of mine um, who I had worked with back at this other company who I respected immensely and basically just sort of asked just basically said like, hey, I'm getting back into the job market after like a decade, effectively yeah. not really in it. Do you have any advice for me? You know, I, yeah. I remember hearing you're back in Toronto now because she'd moved um, she'd moved out west at one point and then come back. I just following her on LinkedIn. And so I'm like, I kind of vaguely knew you're in Toronto. Like, you know, you just like, I know you're, you're, you've always been in the like the people skills end of things um and really good at it and i respect you a lot so like do you have any advice for somebody yeah. you know who i am in my skill set getting back into the game so to speak ten, after being yeah. 10 years out of it and um so she invited me down for coffee um and that was at you know basically at half a block from the click offices okay and she proceeded to sell me on the wonders of working for Click. Then I got hired here. And yeah. then I got a couple months later, a couple months later, well, a couple months later, lockdown started. And right. very shortly thereafter, about two weeks after that, I joined our team. <laughs> right. Which sucked. Right. <laughs> and so tell gone, we've, now we're up to the year of the pandemic where it's just yeah. been buckle buckle down and pretend the world isn't uh in the state that it's in pretty much just yeah. just ignore it keep your head down try and live yeah and uh, uh yes. and that's where we are what are you, 
just I think we've gone on for a while. We're in good shape, but what are you trying to get better at? Leading. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 100%. No, no, no doubt about it. Um, I have a lot of built-in skill around mentoring. Yeah. I'm to the point that I, I inevitably end up in that role. Any team I've ever been put on, however large or small, I always end up in the role as mentor. Um, but that's not quite the same thing as lead, leadership. Right. Right. I have a lot of natural gift, I think, to helping to teach people. Um, but again, sort of being available to mentor people and help them to learn and be better is not the same thing as really deliberately helping to lead a team towards a goal. Yeah. Um, and so that is, that's something that has emerged, I'd say over the last year of my time on our team has emerged as a goal for yeah. me personally on our team. Um, professionally, generally speaking as well, um, learning how big companies can work. Yeah. And I don't know how good an exemplar of that click is because I think in some ways we're quite outstanding compared to certainly what my image of other, what I would call large companies. I know it's not really, but, but to yeah. me, anything that's not, a, anything that's, that's, that's not an SME is, is huge but to, to me, yeah. right? Um, um, so learning how to, you know, how to work in, in, in a, 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 an environment where you're not literally kind of working in the same room as everyone for, you know, you're working right. with, um, is an, <clears throat> is an ongoing journey and a useful one. But, but really I would say at this point, it's trying to be proactively, um, proactively and consciously cultivating the ability to lead a team of devs. Right. Like doing so, doing so consciously rather than just reactively. Right. Like plan, planning ahead. Yeah, planning ahead and having a vision for, I guess just having a vision for what the team should look like and should feel like and then being able to execute on it to some degree right right which is quite a bit different than just getting this project done or being available to help teach people skills or whatever it's like it's not a single skill thing it's not a single project thing it's more of um it's more of a vision level thing and obviously it also means not just working with are more junior devs, but everybody, right? Yeah. The other senior devs, it involves the leadership, et cetera. Um, so I would say that's probably currently my, my um, how I would currently describe right. what my goal is, which what is interesting. Towards. Yeah. yeah, and it's good that you say that because I hadn't actually, I haven't asked myself that question for a while. And last time I did, the answer was different. Right. Um, which was last year, and I was much more uh, technology focused at that. It's not true. I, it's not true. I, I was very team focused, but I was I was less holistic in my answer to that. I'm like, I want to really get our juniors to the point that they um, are feel like they have more more ability and more freedom to learn these things. Right, yeah. give them tools to be able to learn for themselves. Um, but my way of looking at how to do that was quite like focused on our projects and tech of the time. Whereas now I'm sort of, I find myself this year taking on a much more macro view yeah. of the whole, of the whole entirety of, of, of what we do as a team and going on, like, I'm find myself much more willing to question and start trying to tinker with things that six months ago, even I probably would have said are outside of my remit where right. now I'm like, basically screw that noise. <laughs> it's, it's affecting my life and my ability to work. So it's in my remit as far right. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Right. Um, so if I'm going to have that mindset, then I also need to back that up with being much more of an, of an active, 
um, conscious leader right. than I have been in the past, right? If I'm going to start, if I'm going to start mucking about in at these macro levels and start trying to look at, you know, deconstructing our process across multiple crafts and multiple teams and how our developers fit into that and how we can make ourselves rock in that, then I got up my, you know, I, I, I can't pretend to myself that I'm, I'm just a, a coder who's good at explaining things anymore, right? Right. It's got to step that up. So you got to step up and and yeah, coordinate coordinate the systems so that they run smoothly without you standing over the others around you and telling them exactly what to do in that exact yeah. in that yeah, precise obviously. moment. Yeah, which obviously never will never work, right? Right. Um, so it, it's um. Yeah, it's something that I've never really had the opportunity to to involve myself in before, and um, I'm kind of seeing the need here and and feeling like I want to fill it, and so it's like, okay, this is all right. And now I have that new title to hang stuff off of, where I can sort of be like, I'm not just a developer anymore. Yeah, I'm an architect yes. for. You know, architect. Basically, I, I'm I'm kind of coming. My my personal take on that is it basically means that we have a little bit of license to define what that role means for us individually. Right. <laughs> right. Like right. we don't have to be necessarily cookie cuttered into like, well, your job says blah 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 developer. So everyone kind of naturally knows that is what you do. This technical yeah. architect we kind of get to make that up for ourselves a little bit, right? So yeah. and who's gonna know? <laughs> I don't know that we should be revealing that on on, on camera. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Yeah. That it's, that it's all completely made up. 